0: Welcome back, everybody, tonight. Uh, tonight's prophet, actually the next few nights' prophet, is is a little challenging, not necessarily because of some of the reasons other prophets are challenging, but because I would hazard to guess you all know more about Jonah than you know about any other minor prophet, because that's certainly true of me, uh, Jonah, and, of course, him being swallowed by the great fish or the whale is a popular story or rather a biblical story that we share with our kids. However, I am hoping tonight to be able to share at least some context that maybe you didn't know or that might make this event have even more meaning to you, become even more real to you as we study Jonah tonight. So we are going to cover Jonah and the most famous part of his tale, the whale or the great fish. We'll talk about that in a moment tonight in Jonah 1 and Jonah 2. Now, the prophet Jonah is actually one of the few prophets where we actually have a reference to him somewhere else in Scripture other than his book. Um, The first verse of Jonah reads this. Now, the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai saying and we'll get to what he says here in a moment but second kings 14 verse 25 actually mentions the same person and you can see it on the screen there according to the word of the lord god of israel which he spake by the hand of his servant jonah the son of amittai the prophet which was of gath heifer and i'll show you where gath heifer is in a little while now this is very interesting Jonah has a lot of unique things not only about him the person but about the book of Jonah as well Jonah is the only prophet in the Old Testament that was conclusively from Galilee. Gath Heifer, which I'll show you in a moment, is right on the Sea of Galilee. And as far as we know, none of the other prophets were from here. Of course, you'll remember last week, Obadiah, we don't know anything about him. There's actually several prophets where we don't know much about them. So I suppose it's possible that one of these unknown prophets was from Galilee. But Jonah is the only one we can say for certain Was from Galilee. And I do, of course, say Old Testament because we know that Jesus' parents, at the very least, were from Galilee, even if he was born in Bethlehem. Now, as I mentioned, Jonah is mentioned in 2 Kings 14, which actually very, very accurately allows us to date the time in which Jonah would be active. He's specifically mentioned as prophesying during the reign of King Jeroboam II, who is a king of Israel, and that gives us a date range of approximately 782 through 753. So at some point within that 30 year period would have been when this particular part of Jonah's life occurred. And that's when seemingly he was active in general. He did more than just get swallowed by a whale and go to Nineveh. Although, of course, the Bible doesn't record much more of what he did. Just a few uh, small things in second Kings. Now, we know a lot about him because this is also a unique book unlike any of the other minor prophets as it is narrative okay it is not a prophecy or a speech delivered by a prophet to the Israelites, or the Judeans, or the Edomites, or as Nahum does, to Nineveh itself. So there is another book in the Minor Prophets delivered to Nineveh, but it's a speech this time. That's what it is. This is a narrative, which is one of the reasons why we know so much about it. We can teach kids a, a narrative. It's a fairly simple narrative to follow. So that's why we talk about Jonah so much. He's oftentimes discussed in Sunday school because it's a narrative book, which is nice. It makes it easy to study and we can be thankful for that. It's possible that Jonah is not the author of the book, although this is really something that I can't say one way or the other. Scripture does not say. However, it is interesting that Jonah refers to himself in the third person the entire time. In fact, the language of the book of Jonah is quite unique. If you knew Hebrew, I don't know Hebrew, but if you knew Hebrew, um, there's actually a lot of unique words in the book of Jonah. And in fact, these unique words are actually things that sometimes show up in later Jewish writing that came from the northern area. The area around Galilee actually had its own dialect, and Jonah is full of these kind of dialect things, which helps us be even more confident that if Jonah wasn't the author, someone around his area was. Interesting. Now, finally, Hebrew tradition, this has no basis in scripture. It's not anti-scriptural, but I thought you might find it interesting. But Hebrew tradition actually claims that Jonah is the widow's son raised by Elijah. Now, the dates work for this. If we look at the second king's dates. This works, so it, it might line up with scripture, and this is an early tradition, but by early tradition, I mean after Jesus was alive. So I'm not suggesting to you that Jonah is the widow's son, but that is what the Jews teach, which is an interesting detail, and it's, again, theoretically possible. By the way, Gath Hefer is actually located at the southern end of the Sea of Galilee, right about here okay so this is where Jonah was at least born and grew up although it does not factor into the actual story of the book of Jonah Now, the biggest controversy of the book, of course, as you probably could guess, is lots of scholars out there question if Jonah really got swallowed by a fish or by a whale. Of course, I believe that, yes, he really did get swallowed by a fish and a whale, but uh, having an idea about this, having an opinion on this is going to change how you interpret the book. There's many people that interpret the book as a big allegory or as a big a spiritual picture. They use Jonah to represent Israel and the fish swallowing them, like the exile to Babylon. Uh, that, I don't think, is accurate. I think this is a real historical event. And by the way, um, not only, of course, do we think this because the Bible clearly presents this as a historical narrative, but Jesus, as well, clearly references the story of Jonah as a historical event. And he mentions it in two Gospels, Matthew 12, as you see on screen, and Luke 11. In fact, we're going to see those verses in Matthew in a little while because they're quite important. Additionally, lots of famous Jews outside of the biblical text also believed that this was a real event. They referenced it like it was a real event. They believed it was a real event, including philosophers like Philo, who was a Jew who worked in Athens, and then Ben Sarai, who was a Jewish philosopher. So all of these people thought this was a historical event, and most importantly, Jesus, obviously, who has a lot more stock than anybody else does. Additionally, the historical details of Jonah are very accurate, and as we find more and more archaeological evidence... They all line up with what Jonah is telling us. So this, by the way, dispels the idea that maybe Jonah was written several hundred years after the time that it occurred. I believe it was written very close to when Jonah actually went to Nineveh, at least within Jonah's lifetime. The details are too striking and they're too well confirmed to have been put down any other time. Now, Jonah was given a task from God. And here's what it was. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Jonah is commanded to go to the capital of Assyria, the city of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a massive city. In fact, we're going to read in chapter 3 uh, some of the details that Jonah has for us. He describes uh, Nineveh as being a city that it takes three days to walk across. This is a huge city. In fact, archaeology tells us that we are talking about hundreds of thousands of people. Perhaps some large estimates say maybe even as many as a million people could have inhabited the city of Assyria. So this is a large city, and of course you're familiar with Assyria. Assyria is oftentimes in Scripture uh, the empire that is bringing god's judgment down especially on the northern tribes in fact in 722 it destroys the northern tribes entirely and it carries them off uh, as a judgment from god so this is a large empire with a lot of power that being said during jonah's lifetime is one of the few times when assyria was not actually very powerful as in it wasn't actively oppressing Israel or Judah at this time. In fact, they were fighting for survival against their own enemies and therefore had no armies in Israel, no armies in Judah. Uh, They would eventually defeat this enemy and they would come back to cause problems for Israel and Judah. But that was not going on. At this time, they were actually at war with a group of people called the Uratru up here. Okay, And they're, they're actually losing this war uh, during all of Jeroboam's lifetime. In fact, uh, this may have been one of the reasons why the Assyrians were willing to listen to Jonah when he shows up. Because you might think to yourself, Assyria has been steamrolling the Israelites for decades. Why would they suddenly listen, listen to Israel's God uh, when he asks them to repent. Well, currently they were losing a war. So that obviously made them much more receptive uh, to listening to what God had to say. Nineveh is located right here where I have the laser pointer here. This is the capital uh, of Assyria at this time. And of course we have Israel over here. The distance between these locations is about 300 miles uh, as the crow flies, which you would not want to do because you have to cross the desert and it's very unpleasant. So If you ever have to travel between Israel and Nineveh, don't do that. But the fastest way would have been by land um, going north first. My laser pointer is kind of stuck there going over. That'd take you about 500 miles. In other words, this is a journey of at least several weeks, probably total return time. We're talking about a three-month trip that God is asking um, Jonah to go on. And even though Assyria was not oppressing Israel at this very moment in time, Assyria was certainly guilty of really chastising Israel in the past. Syrians are famous in historical accounts for their brutality, the number of people and the methods in which they used to kill people. Uh, They're infamous for this. And certainly they had not been kind to Israel. And so it is not a surprise from a human perspective that Jonah was not excited about this mission. These guys were their national enemies. In fact, they were worse than national enemies. They were national conquerors. And so God offering them a chance of repentance was not something that Jonah wanted. And so, of course, you know that Jonah is going to decide to flee. He does this very quickly. Basically, the narrative opens with Jonah exists, here's God's command, and Jonah flees. That's the opening of the book, and everything after that is what the book of Jonah is really about. Now, Jonah rejects God's mission and he flees towards Tarshish. And we'll talk about Tarshish here in just a moment. Uh, He's going to flee to the city of Joppa, better known as Jaffa or Tel Aviv today, actually, same place. It's the only natural harbor in Israel. In fact, it's the only place you can go in Israel if you wanted to get on a boat. And he fled on a Phoenician boat towards the other end of the Mediterranean. Now, Tarshish is a place that has been very hard to locate, primarily because the Phoenicians called like eight places Tarshish. So actually, it's not so much that we don't know where Tarshish is, it's that we don't know which one that Jonah was actually going to. Okay, So he was going somewhere, that's clear. This is a historically accurate name, that's not in doubt. But the exact location, um, obviously, since Jonah never gets there, it's kind of hard to tell where it is. But I'll give you a couple possible options. Uh, First off, let's start at the beginning of his trip. Here is Jaffa right here. Jerusalem is right there. It's about 30 miles between Jaffa and Jerusalem. Samaria is right here. It's about 30 miles from Jaffa and Samaria. But he is going to flee from Jaffa and he has several options. The most likely option that you may have heard before is possibly Spain. This is the most famous option. Tarshish. And this is what I personally believe he was fleeing to. I think there's a little bit of. Symbolism here. This is literally as far as you could go. This is the last outpost of, quote, civilization to the Mediterranean world, was this point right here. If you went any further, you were literally off the edge of their knowledge. Uh, the Straits of Gibraltar, which is this narrow point between Spain and Africa, was called the Pillars of Hercules. This was as far as anybody understood. So this would be the end of the known world. I think Jonah, since he had already decided to flee, probably picked the furthest destination and tried to run that far. But there are other candidates. This could have been Carthage, which was located right here. This was called Tarshish by the Phoenicians. It could have been Sardinia, this island right here, also called Tarshish, along with about five other islands in the Mediterranean. The key point is all of them were away from Assyria. So no matter where he was going, he was going away from what God wanted him to do. This is the area that Tarshish controlled a few years after Jonah would have gotten there. Now, of course, we know that Jonah never makes it to Tarshish, so where that is is really academic because God is going to prevent him from getting there by sending a storm to stop him. Now the Mediterranean does have a stormy season. It's the winter time, and it's a dangerous time to travel. Uh, you're probably familiar with that because the Apostle Paul warns his ship, his his uh, crewmates, not to sail during the winter months. And if they do, that there's going to be some problems. And of course, we're familiar with that narrative in Acts 27 where they are shipwrecked on Malta eventually. So the Mediterranean could be dangerous. However, based on the text here, this was clearly not an expected storm. This was an unseasonable storm, and it was a disaster for these sailors. Now, these sailors react exactly like we would expect pagan sailors to react. And again, these are Phoenicians or Canaanites. More on that in just a second. Their mindset, their worldview was that every natural event was the divine. Now, which divine? That was the problem. So yes, there was a storm. Someone had clearly offended a deity, but which deity had been offended? They had no idea. By the way, storms don't even have to be caused by storm gods, which was what Baal was, or sea gods, because any god, in their opinion, could cause this problem. So it's no surprise that they all start worshiping their own god to try to earn favor back and deal with whatever the problem was. Eventually, the captain wakes Jonah up, who had fallen asleep in the bottom of the hold, and asks him to check with his god, okay? They don't know who his god is at this time, which is revealed to us in the narrative. However, everyone is begging their gods for relief because there's clearly no way that they can relief otherwise. Now, this is what Jonah says when they actually cast lots and they find that Jonah is the one who has committed the sin. He says this, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid and said unto him, why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they cast lots and they find that Jonah is at fault. Now, the way that Jonah describes God here makes a lot of sense. He describes him as the God of heaven. This would be an appropriate way to refer to God at this exact moment, right? We have storms all around us. Only the God of heaven can do this. But here's what's really meaningful about this. The sailors understand how serious this is. Jonah doesn't seem to. They understand that this is an affront to God. This is a great affront and they take it very, very seriously. Now, to their credit, they don't immediately throw him over overboard. In fact, Jonah says, the only way you're going to pacify God is to throw me overboard. The sailors don't do this immediately, but eventually, having no chance, they try and row back the lamb. They can't do it. They are forced to throw Jonah overboard. And they, by the way, actually come off pretty good in this story because as soon as they throw Jonah overboard the sea calms, the storm goes away and they get it. Jonah's God, clearly the real God. And they worship, they make vows. They had a moment to recognize God for who he was and they seemingly took it. Now, of course, we don't know anything more about them. We don't know if they just thought God was a powerful God amongst many, or maybe they actually converted. We can't tell, but they're reaction is an appropriate one so in that sense the crew comes off quite well here they took god seriously as they should have uh, much better than jonah himself now this is where the famous whale enters into the equation and we want to talk about this the language uh, that is used in scripture is a great fish this is what the hebrew literally means okay um An interesting thing I had never thought about is in Jonah 2, we have a psalm of Jonah. And he describes that he was drowning when the fish swallowed him. So most likely, um, he didn't get immediately swallowed up by the whale. He probably hit the water. Uh, he floundered around. He started to drown. And then the fish or the whale swallowed him at that point. That's seemingly what the psalm indicates. Again, the narrative doesn't say that. But he talks about uh, seaweed wrapping around him and sinking down. And then he was saved from death Uh, by God. Now, the nature of the animal that swallowed Jonah is not clear in scripture. Um, It's not a scientific term. Sometimes people think to themselves, ah, it's a fish. Therefore, it could not possibly have been a whale. Uh, The Israelites did not know there was a difference between whales and fish. And remember, when it comes to the Bible, um, it's allowed to use language that normal people use, okay? You don't have to go examine whales to check if they have gills to call them a fish, okay? Really what the word means is aquatic creatures, and that is accurate for the Israelites, okay? So don't take the fact that the Bible says great fish to mean it couldn't be a whale, It must be a fish, right? The Bible is describing literally what happened. A large aquatic creature swallowed Jonah. The exact nature of the aquatic creature, of course, is not revealed. Although there's been many suggestions out there, I'll give you a few um, ideas that people have. Thought of in the past. Um, whales are the most likely candidates because the biggest problem for any fish is getting Jonah down the throat, okay? There are a few fish that have throats just big enough for it, but whales have much larger throats. Now, again, could God have done something completely miraculous? Obviously, he could. However, usually... God works through natural means because he created the world, he created nature, he usually works through the things that he already created. So I think most likely a whale is what makes sense. Whales breathe air and scientific examination and other historical stories actually show that it is possible to survive for a long period of time in a whale, if you can believe it. The longest verified, if you want to say that word Uh, it's time someone has spent in a whale is actually about 20 hours if you can believe it and they survived so it is possible to live in a whale uh, for a little while and of course with god's miraculous power involved three days is no problem so i think it was a whale myself Uh, there are some fish large enough to swallow a human though if you like the fish angle uh, your most likely fish is actually the good old great white shark uh, which if a large enough individual swam by they do have throats just large enough to fit a human down. Uh, Whale sharks are also a possibility as well. Now, finally, the last option that theologians throw around is possibly this is the work of Leviathan, who is most famously mentioned in the book of Job. However, that is not the only place Leviathan shows up in Scripture. He actually shows up in two psalms. Uh, The more famous one I've put on screen for you. This is from Psalm 104. Uh, There go the ships. There is that Leviathan whom thou hast made to play therein. These wait all upon thee. "...that thou mayest give them their meat in due season, that thou givest them, they gather, they openest thine hand, and they are filled with good, thy hidest they face, they are troubled, thou takest away their breath, they die and return to their dust, thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created, and thou renewest the face of the earth." You might know that Job is one of our earliest books, so if Leviathan was around during Job, maybe he didn't exist anymore, but Psalm 104, as far as we can tell, is a psalm composed around Jonah's time, probably actually after Jonah was alive, so there's still Leviathans around. Whatever Leviathan was, perhaps he's the one that ate Jonah. Again, the language, the great fish, really just describes big sea creatures, so it's possible that it was Leviathan. Again... This is not scriptural in the sense of scripture doesn't say one way or the other, but it's food for thought. Regardless, the action is significant. The whale or the fish or the Leviathan, whatever it was, is actually a sign of God's mercy and his protection. The drowning, the dying in water, that was the punishment. The fish was actually God saving Jonah. And this is important because... Jesus describes what happens to Jonah as a spiritual sign. The sign of Jonah. Going down for three days and coming back, this is actually really powerful. It's a picture of sin. Drowning is a picture of sin, and the whale is actually a picture, as crazy as it seems, of the resurrection process that happened, which is very interesting to think about. It shows God's mastery over nature, of course. Only God could command a sea animal to swallow a human, which, to be perfectly honest, no Sea animal really naturally does, not swallows one whole. A shark will take a bite out of you, uh, but he doesn't normally swallow you. So God clearly has power over nature, and he has power over chaos. That's what the storm was. So this is a miracle that has many different implications for us to think about. Now, Jonah 2 is actually primarily a psalm. So the end of Jonah 1, he's swallowed by the fish, and then we have Jonah 2. Jonah 2 is a psalm. It was composed by Jonah, uh, possibly sung At the time, maybe he thought it up. It depends on how God preserved Jonah's life in the fish. It's possible most fish stomachs are not very big, so I actually like to think that Jonah was kind of in a straitjacket for three days, really thinking about what he'd done. He probably couldn't sing there. However, it's always possible that God did something miraculous, and Jonah, too, is actually sung in the belly of the fish. That's possible. I actually think it's really composed after the fact, so Jonah's reflecting on his time in the fish, and... And he composes this psalm. And it is a psalm. Um, you're very familiar with psalms because Pastor and I and Johnny have been preaching through psalms recently. That is very clearly what Jonah 2 is. So if you haven't read Jonah 2 recently, take a look at it. It's pretty cool. Uh, Jonah recognizes in this psalm that he's bound for destruction. He is going to be destroyed. And then he remembered God and he resolved to obey God. This is clearly after the fish has swallowed him and saved him from destruction. So again, uh, God saved him, and this is motivating Jonah to go do what God had asked him to do. Jonah's then spit out by the fish, where we don't know. Some people have suggested that it was back where he started. Um, there's been many other fanciful ideas of where he may have been spit out, possibly the closest physical point to Nineveh, which would have required the fish to swim something like 18,000 miles. I don't think that's probably what happened, but there's lots of ideas of where Jonah ends up. For the purposes of the story, it's not important because Jonah chapter 3, which we'll get to next week, um, it doesn't give us a, like, amount of time it took Jonah to travel. So it really didn't matter where the fish spit him out. He's going to travel to Nineveh next, no matter how long that took. Now, let's go ahead and talk some takeaways from Jonah. I think the most important takeaway we can take from Jonah is the one that Jesus had for us in Matthew 12 and Luke 11. They're parallel passages. I've given you the one from Matthew chapter 12. This is what he said. He's speaking to the Pharisees. But he answered and said unto them, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall be no sign given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas, that's Jonah, by the way, was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, a greater than Jonah is here. So what happened to Jonah? has its spiritual reflection in what happens with Jesus in his resurrection. Again, both of these are real things. Jonah really got swallowed by the whale, spit out 3 days later. Jesus really died and really rose again 3 days later, but they are interconnected. The events in Jonah were actually pointing towards what was going to happen with Jesus. Now of course there's some things that aren't shared. Obviously Jesus is not disobedient to God, Jonah was. So don't necessarily take every detail of the Jonah story as reflective of Jesus, but at the very least, the 3 days spent in the whale are significant. They were pointing to a picture of how Jesus was going to be resurrected, how he was going to pay for our sins. So that is significant. Additionally, we learn this from this part of Jonah's story, that God accomplishes his purposes no matter what. Right? Jonah thought that if he ran, then God... wouldn't be able to, I guess, redeem the Ninevites, right? If you said, go to the Ninevites and I run, then the Ninevites can't be redeemed. Obviously that is silly. God is going to get it done. He usually doesn't go quite to the same extreme to get the same person back on the job as he did Jonah here. Uh, But certainly we know that he can and he does regularly. So God accomplishes his purposes no matter what. Finally, we see that even those who know God can disobey him. And this perhaps should keep us humble. Jonah is a prophet of God. Okay, This is someone that had spoken for God. We can assume previously to this, although we don't know for sure. Perhaps the reference in Second Kings is after he gets back from Nineveh. But God and Jonah had a relationship, and yet Jonah still disobeyed God. And so we should think about that, right? We want to strive to continue to be obedient. We can't just coast because we've served God in the past. We need to continue to do that in the present. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to consider Jonah. Help us as we continue to dig into Jonah and his message and what you did through him. Uh, Lord, thank you for what you've done for us. Please bless all of us as we go from here. Thank you for all you've done for us. We ask this in your name. Amen.
1: Thank you for watching this video of one of our recent services. It's a pleasure for us to have you join us from a distance and join our church in a time of worship around the Word of God. The most important message that we can tell you is that God loves you. He loves you so much that He gave Jesus Christ as payment for your sins. The Bible says that all that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. We want you to know that message, that true life is found in Jesus Christ. An eternal life, the opportunity to live with God forever in heaven, in spite of our sinfulness. True life is only found in Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Would you be willing to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Would you be willing to pray something like this? Lord, I know I'm a sinner, and I know there's nothing I can do about my sinfulness. I don't want to pay for my own sin, and I want to put my faith in Jesus I want His death on the cross to pay for my sins. I want to repent from doing things my own way and make Jesus Lord of my life. Would you be willing to pray something like that and put your faith in Jesus Christ? If so, we want to help you as you start your spiritual journey with Jesus Christ. God loves you. Our church loves you. We're glad that you could watch this message today. God bless.